Jose Bowen reveals teaching naked techniques on episode 136 of Teaching in Higher Ed. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I welcome back to the show, Jose Antonio Bowen. He's the president of Goucher College. He began his teaching career at Stanford University in 1982 as the director of jazz ensembles. In 94, he became the founding director of the Center for the History and Analysis of Recorded Music at the University of Southampton, England. He returned to America in 99 to Georgetown University, where he created and directed the program. It's now a department in performing arts. He was the Dean of Fine Arts at Miami University before moving to SMU in Dallas in 2006 to become the Dean of the Meadows School of the Arts. He's been a pioneer in active learning and the use of technology in the classroom, including podcasts and online games. He's been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Newsweek, USA Today, and NPR, and a whole bunch of other ones. And he came on previously to talk about his book, Teaching Naked, How Moving Technology Out of Your College Classroom Will Improve Student Learning, And he's back today to talk about his new book, Teaching Naked Techniques, a practical guide to designing better classes. Jose, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. Very glad to be here. Wow. Wow. Two whole years, huh? Uh, Well, certainly lots of presidenting things and some trips and building buildings and all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, in between, we did write a new book, Teaching Naked Techniques, because TNT is what you need to add to your teaching. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't even get it when I, I read it. Didn't didn't get it. <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, because it was gonna, it was going to be teaching naked handbook and teaching naked field guide, and none of those sounded uh, re- remotely happy enough. So, well, I was so happy you're gracious to give your time up back to the teaching and higher ed community, and I know that your co-author Eddie will be doing the same as well. So we're going to actually have not a necessarily a two-part episode, but from both of the author's perspectives. And why don't we just start out with the thoughts that you both present in the introduction about how do we go about designing our courses for the brain in the body? Sure. So, so again, the, the beauty of having a co-author, and, and Eddie um, has been a fantastic co-author, and he works at a different type of institution, um, right? So he's at Georgia, so a, a big institution, uh, an R1, um, at a small liberal arts college. So that gave us lots of opportunities for saying, you know, does this work here? No, it doesn't work at my institution or, or that kind of thing. Uh, he also you know, knows the, the, the research literature better than I do, and he's on top of all sorts of things. So we had a great partnership and a lot of fun doing this. And we started with the idea that we wanted to look at, at, at research, um, the, the, the recent research and what it had added um, to what we knew about designing 
courses and experiences for students. So on the one hand, what's interesting is that there is this, uh, this, this convergence of a couple of different fields, which doesn't always happen, right? So for a long time, the pedagogy piece, what teachers talk about was coming out of education and maybe educational psychology. And, and there's like there some experiments and research going on in the classroom. Um, but all of a sudden, we've now got this explosion of, of cognitive psychology and neurobiology that's actually looking inside the brain um, and looking at how neural networks are created and, and how students learn. So we've had a couple of, of great new books um, that have come out uh, since the first Teaching Naked uh, came out, especially Make It Stick. And then Terry Doyle and Todd's book, The, the New Science of Learning. So um, we wanted to take a look at those things and say, how does that, how does that change how we design our courses. And the irony that I saw, I wanted to start by pointing out that pedagogy can only get us so far. In, in fact, the things that matter a whole lot more than pedagogy are what I call sweet. So on the first day of class here, I told all of my freshmen, I said, you're going to see me walking around campus. And I'm going to say, hey, how's it going? And the answer is always going to be sweet. So the students tell me, I say, how's it going? They say sweet. And I say, because sweet is going to remind you that what's most important for learning is sweet. Sleep, water, eating, exercise, and time. Pedagogy didn't make the list, right? <laughs> that sleep really matters. If, you're, if you haven't had enough sleep, it doesn't matter how exciting the class is, your, your, your cognitive function is diminished and you'll probably fall asleep. Um, water, because your brain is dehydrated, especially in the morning, you need a couple of glasses of water. Coffee doesn't help, it dehydrates, it makes it worse. It makes you feel more awake, which is even, even worse. Um, we've had an explosion of research on exercise and how exercising, even just before a test, um, actually increases memory and recall. And we know that, that eating your diet really matters to learning. Uh, and then finally, time, right? It takes time. You have to do the work. There really isn't much teaching that goes on. It's only your learning that teacher can't do the work for you. So, so I tell my students to remember sweet and uh, so on the one hand, we looked at all the biology, right? Our students have brains, but their brains live in their bodies and their adolescent bodies. So the brain is changing a lot during college. And uh, I mean, a lot, a lot. Uh, and so again, we, we've learned a lot more about why teenagers take high risk behaviors, what they're motivated to do, all of that sort of thing. So the question is, how does that intersect? How, do, how does the, the brain being in a body intersect with your classroom design. Um, and at the end of the day, it really occurred to us that, that the design problem was really about encouraging or nudging students to better learning behaviors. That, you know, what you're really trying to do is not say, well, how do I cover all the content? What you're really trying to do is figure out how do I design situations that will encourage students to do what's in their own best interest. <laughs> and that's a pretty different problem than what, you know, what should I cover next week? And, you know, what topic comes first? What's really important to me? So the, the, the book was about thinking about cl the classroom and about the design problem through the lens of the biology of students and their brains and trying to figure out how do you nudge them for the behaviors that actually are the only behaviors that will help them learn, which is their own study skills. One of the ways I know you try to nudge us as faculty as we're thinking about our own designing is 
what we decide to introduce first to our students and our learning experiences. And this is something I've learned about in the last couple of years, and I'm spending a lot more time thinking about, and I appreciate how you challenge us in this way. What do we need to do as we think about first exposure? You know, one of the things that we can manipulate as teachers is sequence, right? When do, when do we encounter what? And when do students encounter material? And so, so again, one of the things we know about the brain is that the, your brain has this, you know, fight or flight response. So you, your, your body actually sends two signals to your brain, right? And the first thing it gets to is not the neocortex, right? The neocortex is in front. So things from your spinal cord go first to your amygdala, which, which does a threat response, right? Is this thing a threat? Do I need to get up and run? Is this, you know, is this a bear chasing me? In which case I don't need to say, hmm, bear, claws, big, brown, right? I just run. So the problem is that that also happens with all the information that comes in in a classroom. So if a, if, if a student brain perceives something as a threat, it never gets to the judgment part of the brain. It's just, oh my God, this is scary. Shut down all the other functions and focus on how do I protect myself? So math anxiety, for example, is a real problem or believing that you can't do something, you know, this mindset, that, that all these things are problems and that faculty is like, oh, it's not my problem, it's your problem. And well, but in fact, if you want to help students learn, you do have control over, over when students encounter material. So especially if the subject you know, might have, uh, might be controversial, um, but it just might scare students, right? It's just not something I'm familiar with, um, or I'm afraid I'm not going to do well at this, or I'm just not interested, right? I'm not motivated. Uh, so turning on that motivation needs to happen right away. And so if you start by thinking, well, what do I need to cover? What matters to me? Um, you're probably not going to be as effective as you want to be. So good teaching, in my view, always starts with what matters to your students always. It ends with what matters to you, but it doesn't start with, well, here's what matters to me. Here's what I want to teach you today, right? You know, my favorite example of this is, you know, if you're, if you were going to have to teach um, a, a course on racial profiling to your local police department, right? Would it matter how many degrees you had or how many articles written or how much of an expert you were, right? If you're teaching a mandatory training to police officers on a Saturday morning at eight o'clock, Nobody wants to be there and they may respect you as an expert, but they don't really want to learn what you have to teach them. So, so your, your challenge is not, well, how, you know, how, how fast can I talk to cram information in, but rather how do I break down people's perhaps resistance to wanting to be in my course or their fear about what might happen? So the first thing that happens is engagement, right? You need to have engagement before content, engagement before learning. So finding an entry point, a way to engage people with something that matters to them. So the place to start is not racial profiling, but what matters to my audience? And so different audiences will have different things that matter to them. So in the case of my police officers, my example is, you know, maybe we talk about trucks. Anybody here, you know, drive a truck? Uh, I have I have a couple of relatives who are police officers and they both drive trucks. I say, it's, uh, but they have, they have strong opinions. So who drives a Ford? Who drives a Dodge? Who drives a Chevy? Well, why? And what would you, if I gave you a free Chevy instead of your Dodge, would that be okay? Right. And the answer would be no. <laughs> but the point is they have a conversation, right? Talk about, find something, football, something, you know, whatever is interesting to your audience, get them talking and then wait for your opportunity. 
right? Wait for the time to say, aha, so why is it that Ford matters so much to you? Is it because, you know, and, and well, you know, my father drove a Ford or, you know, they've been in the family or whatever, whatever the reason is. And then, then you can start to talk about, well, is, is that a bias? And um, do you make judgments about that? And how do you, you know, so I ease into the subject. And, and when I do this exercise with faculty, I almost always find that people don't start far enough away, right? People are thinking about their subject immediately. And I think, you know, you probably need to take it two or three steps away, find something that really matters to your students, because when they're engaged and they're talking, trust yourself, you will find an opening to connect that subject matter and that meaningful conversation that's happening with where you want to go. And that's actually where the design and the pedagogy are. So I think entry points are very, very important. It's, the, it's before students actually encounter your material. It's, it's the pre-work. So it's not even the first encounter, the first contact with the material. It's before that stage. And I, you know, I came at this as a musician because, right, people, are, people get the heebie-jeebies when you see Beethoven. Oh, my God, it's going to be a serious concert. I'm gonna mm -hmm. have, what am I going to wear? Uh, you know, how do, what, what happens? And so maybe I don't have to mention there's going to be Beethoven. Right? Could I actually introduce you to the music I'm about to play without using the word Beethoven? Um, so this is the same principle. It's, it's how, to, how, to, how to figure out what happens first, even before students encounter the material. Um, and so there's a whole chapter on entry points. I know you have another lesson that you learned about sequencing from teaching your students about blues and the rumba. And this is where I really wish I had some music queued up to go, but I don't. So <laughs> you're going to have to tell this either by humming a bar or something. Talk about your intro to world music course and what you learned about sequencing when you thought about those, those two styles of music. Yeah. So, so, and it, it, so, so well, the good news is I, I can talk about it generally. So traditionally when you're going to, you know, do a course like this, um, you say, well, I'm going to talk about one genre a day, you know, and this would be true if you're going to, you know, you're talking about historical periods or, you know, you divide up your course into units. So, you know, I was going to talk about the blues, which is the, the foundation of American music on one day, uh, and then the rumba, which is the foundation of Cuban music on another day. So you say, okay, so today class, we're going to talk about American music and we're going to learn about the blues and there we go. And then next week, we'll come back and we'll learn about this. And then the week after that, we'll learn about some other country. And so that's the traditional way, you know, you, you find some way to break stuff up. And we, you know, we, we pick content areas or sections that matter to us. So I was thinking about this and thinking, well, the problem with that approach is that I'm going to then teach them about the blues for one day. Then I will teach them about the rumba for one day. And I thought, well, I don't want, right, my own principles. I want them to discover you know, so I decided to say, okay, so the first thing I've got to do is they've got to understand the difference musically between the two art forms. You know, what, what, what things are different. I sent the students an example of a blues that's easy to find on YouTube. And then I sent them an example of a rumba. And so I said, listen to these two things and then make a list of how they're different, right? Just, just technically what, what's different about them. And so um, then we spent a day and so in the course of doing that, you know, I had to talk about the things I would have normally talked about a 12 bar blues and it's a pattern of this kinds of things. And then, and then I said, well, how are they similar? Uh, and then, so that led to a whole suit. So they're similar and one's Cuban, one's American. So that led to the end of the conversation was, okay, I introduced my next subject, which is, well, why are they similar and why are they different? You go between classes and come up with a theory. So come back to the next class with a theory as to why the blues in the rumba might be similar and why they're different and how you explain those similarities and differences. And so the, the answer is, is, is obviously related to, 
to when slaves came to which country, where this, where they were from, what they were allowed to bring with them, how long slaves came to America versus how long they went to Cuba, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Uh, most of their theories had some, they were, they were right in some ways and wrong in some other ways. But it forced the students to do some of the work themselves. And so I was able to do less of the teaching um, and you know, less of the, of the, of the professing um, and just set up a situation where students had to try to figure out an interesting question for themselves. But again, a question that they had come to. And I, and I had to trust at the end of the first class, they would, they would think it was interesting to say, well, you've, you just, you know, talked about the technical differences between these two types of music. Now do you wonder why, right? I mean, and, and yeah, why would they be? And because they're, they're both, you know, they're both African musics, they're both hybrid musics, but they're hybrids of different kinds of things. Why and why, you know, and what? And so, okay, they're not experts in Cuba. They're not, they're not experts in, in in slavery and and uh, in, in the history of both countries. But I said, but you know, you've got you've got Google. You you can you know find some information, do do a little work, and see if you can put something together. And again, I wasn't I wasn't asking for a complete history of slavery. Um, I was asking for them to think about how the pieces might be put together. That's an example of just how of of, of how I had to rethink my own assumptions about uh, sequence. Are there times when they have come back to you and just completely surprised you that they uncovered something that you hadn't really considered about the distinctions? Oh, all the time. That's the beauty of this is that, you know, you, you bring, you know, your particular perspective and then students come back. And so, you know, uh, and it happens both ways. Sometimes they say, well, you know, religion, nobody mentioned religion, you know, is, are there differences between, you know, the religion of, of not just the, the, the slaves, but, but of, but of the, the people who were, who were their masters. And there's just dead silence. And I say, well, I got to fill that one. And other times we said, no, I have an idea. And so, um, and sometimes it's wacky. It doesn't always have to be right. But again, it's, it's students are thinking and processing for themselves, but I do learn stuff. And I also have a lot of fun in trying to push them to come up with longer lists. So the minute I say, well, I need to have 10 different theories. Oh my God, 10 theories. Um, so that definitely pushes us into, into cuckoo land sometimes, um, which again is okay. What you're really describing to me just points out a real weakness in being the expert because we have these networks that are already built of knowledge. We've got, I mean, when you think about even the outline for a textbook for a world introduction to world music course, that outline already exists in your mind the outline for the introduction to business class that I teach already exists in my mind. I don't have to, I mean, they might organize chapters differently than I might have, but the knowledge is mapped in my mind. How do you step away from your own map so that you can rediscover what it's like to not see these connections between the topics in a given course? Oh yeah. Well, you, that's a big one. And so that is always the problem with the expert and the novice is that, you know, we have, we have connections upon connections upon connections. And so again, the design problem that is teaching is mostly about breaking things down into smaller and smaller units. And we almost always don't go small enough on the first cut that, you know, my, my favorite examples, I did a, a you know, a, a listening game and I thought, well, the first level is going to be, you know, what's the ensemble, piano, trio, big band, you know, solo, guitar, you know, that sort of thing. And immediately students came back to me and said, oh, that's great. I like it. I love it. It's easy. And other students were like, what's a trombone? 
It never occurred to me that somebody might not have ever seen a trombone and know what that sounds like. So now I have, okay, I got to have all, this is a trombone. This is a clarinet, right? This is a drum. Uh, so right, we're going to forget that there's always a more basic level. So one way to get around that, you know, is, is do, you know, do, do pre-testing, you know, ask before the semester starts, you know, what are people's assumptions about your discipline? So maybe ask your students on the first day to design a business course. You know, you, the syllabus is over to you, you know, or do a concept map, right? What, what, what would the concept map of this course look like on day one? What are the concepts that you've heard of and how are they related? And that gives you a chance to peer into their brains um, and figure out what connections they see. Um, the other thing I, I would suggest is to ask the, your students the question, why are you in this course? What matters, right? What, what do you think you need to learn and why do you need to learn it? Because if you understand why they want to learn it, in some ways that's even more important because now I understand um, their motivation. Uh, another good question is how do you think you can get an A? What do you have to do to get an A in my course, assuming you want an A? Um, so maybe you ask them what grade do you want in my course? Then you ask them, well, how do you think you're, you, know, you can get that? So those are all ways to get inside your student's head a bit at the beginning of the course. And of course, if you've already designed your syllabus, you're stuck. But right, if you can hold off on some of that and adapt to your students or you know, ask them at the end of the semester or, you know, but for next semester, you, you get some information. But, but that is the problem, that, that as an expert, you know why A is in front of B. Uh, and another one that's interesting that relates to the brain is that you know that in order to really understand A, you've got to overly simplify B for the time being that you'll come back and you'll complicate later. But figuring out how to simplify and also how to tell students, I am going, I mean, you have to tell students, I am simplifying on purpose. I am making this overly simple because I want you to master this part. And then I will add that complexity once you're really good at that. And even that amount of transparency helps students because students don't know that. Again, you know that. Students think, well, this is just the way it is, right? If you do this and you do that, you always get that. In a bull market, this always happens. And in that, you know, that always, right? And so, because you told me that, and you were, you were just giving them the general guidelines. So, so telling people when you're simplifying is one way to help, uh, trying to break it down into smaller and smaller pieces. And a, a, final, a final idea is to think about when you learn something totally new, right? Because even though you're an expert in business uh, or in chemistry or whatever, right? The, when you learned tennis or you first learned yoga or whatever it was, right? You know, when you first learn tennis, you think, well, the first thing I'd learn is the forehand. No, actually, the first thing you learned is the footwork or how to hold the racket, right? It's probably an even smaller piece, right? How to hold the racket, how to swing the racket. Um, and then what a good teacher does is teach you one skill and then slightly complicate it, right? Add something else and then go back to that first thing and then make sure you, you can do the, the forehand um, with the footwork together. One of the things that you described of a, of a weakness of how we typically think about things. I'm going to cover blues this day. I'm going to cover rumba this play this day is that they aren't then able to make those networks. And one of the things I try to do is, or just a quick exercise I do is I will create essentially index cards, although I don't actually print them on index cards. I print them on regular paper, but I've got categories that are in all capital letters or in, and in blue font and then I've got lowercase letters that are things that fall under that category. As an example, different economic systems, economic systems will be in capital letters with blue on one of the cards, and then completely shuffled around in this deck of about 50 cards will be capitalism, socialism, communism. 
And they've got these decks that they work in groups of three to four sitting around in small groups where after we've talked about these different concepts, they may have memorized what capitalism is. They may have memorized what socialism is, but they forget that these things go together under this map called economic systems. So that's one of the ways I can slow myself down to discover which things they're starting to group together and understand how these categories map with each other. And then areas where, gosh, they they actually don't realize that these things go with each other. And then we'll kind of talk about what order might we present things so that they're grouped in a logical order. And it's just kind of a nice way for me to stop and do a check-in with the class and check in with myself on what I've made assumptions about. No, I think that's a great technique. And I think, again, that's why I like concept maps. Uh, that. Um, and you know, wikis, wikis are good for this too, because again, this is, this is how we learn. We're making connections. And, and again, if you really want your students to learn, what you're asking them to do is to, to reevaluate what they already know. You're asking them to say, well, that's those things that you knew or the things I taught you last week, reevaluate them now because you have a new category mm-hmm. um, and, and you have to resort everything. So that's really important. And so, you know, the nice thing about a wiki is that it changes, or if you do concept maps to, to, to help them change all the time. But I like having students, you know, process for themselves, how are these things related to whether it's index cards, which I love, um, or, or a concept map, or, or working and you know, writing things on the wall. They get to see then, and again, visual is important, they get to see that knowledge changes as you add pieces, that, the, that knowledge is really not just the facts, it's the, it's the how you organize the facts. That that's what knowledge is. It's 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 the, it's the system, not just the pieces. And I think, uh, again, as you say, for us, you know, we have this complicated system. We have this map that we bring with us to the table. And what we don't want to do is to say, I'm going to trans. I'm going to give you my map, right? I'm going to give you my content, and I'm going to give you my way of processing and my map. Because students see the world differently. They have they come with different pieces. So they have to integrate things that you don't have. And so their map is going to be different than your map. And that's what you want. My example, again, as a piano teacher, I start from the assumption, I don't want my students to all sound like me. I don't want them to all sound like my students. I mean, yes, there are certain things I'd like my students to be known for, perhaps, but that's really my own ego. What I really want is for all of my students to find their own voice, to find their own way of being the best piano player they can be to be unique in that. And so I have to do a lot more to get into their head. What do they want to do? Why do they want to do it? Knowledge is the system. And so students are bringing their own knowledge. And so what you're asking them to do is to integrate what they know with what they're going to learn. We started this conversation with you asserting that pedagogy can only get us so far. Talk a bit about pedagogy as human relationships. So let's start with the the macro, which is that the evidence that that we have coming out of this Gallup-Purdue index is that the things that really matter to students 20, 30, 40 years from now are are things like the sense of belief in themselves uh, and their connectedness. And so one of the things that really, really matters for your career and that's just not, that's, and it's also, it's your happiness, it's your life earnings, it's your, it's your fitness, your, your likelihood of getting a divorce. I mean, all of these things are related to, did you find a mentor in college? 
somebody who believed in you? Did you make relationships and somebody said, I really think you're going to be a great poet. I think you can be a physicist and, and I believe in you. And that sense that these, that these people, these professors, these mythical figures who have degrees you've never heard of, these people who you admire and respect and can't imagine ever being, when, when one of them says they believe in you, it, it has a powerful effect. And so the idea of, a, of faculty as role models really matters. And so uh, it turns out that, that we have all of this interesting new national data that says that, that relationships drive both success and happiness for the rest of our students' lives. We also know that it's, it's very hard to learn when you're anxious, where we talked about, you know, the, the, the fight or flight. And so when you're, when you're anxious or stressed or you hate the teacher, or again, even simple things like we know that students learn more when they believe the teacher cares about learning. Um, and so if you believe your teacher doesn't care about you as a person or care about your learning, you don't learn as much. So, so in every way, uh, the relationships with students end up being key. I'd also add that I think this has become more important in the last decades because our access to content has increased so dramatically that, you know, if I, if I don't understand a concept, you know, Mr. Khan will teach me. I can find somebody online with a little explanation. <laughs> there's, there's, there's all of that stuff. You know, you're, you're, you need to hook up your washing machine. You Google Maytag, blah, blah, blah. And there's a video of somebody doing it for you. You know, <laughs> we have, we're going to get content. And so the, Ability to learn online is, is related to, to two things. One is understanding how courses work and how learning works and how you're going to change your mental map and how to change. And, and also to whether you can self-regulate, right? Do you understand how to study and how, how learning works? Do you believe in yourself? Do you believe that, that you can do this? So those are things that teachers have a lot of uh, effect over and really can change. And so both in our own immediate classes, uh, students will learn more if they feel that you're approachable. And uh, long term, we know they actually have better lives when they have connections with, with faculty and, and, have, and believe that you care about their learning. Um, actually, Eddie did an, an experiment that, that you should ask him about where he asked students um, to, to describe, to make concept maps of what good teaching is. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, lo obviously long lists of things, but when he categorized them, they really ended up in two categories. One is that students want you to be organized and fair, right? What, what, what we think of as the design characteristics, right? How your syllabus is, how the, how the subjects are organized, are your tests fair? Then they want you to be approachable, funny, nice, the human characteristics. There's a whole other set of things that are, that are about your humanity. And those are the those are both important. So the the, the good news is we've written a book about the design <laughs> uh, parts of it because we can help you with that. Uh, it's a lot harder to help you with your human parts if you're if you're if you're a jerk. Good luck. <laughs> um, but it turns out that that being a jerk is going to make it harder for you to be a good teacher. Um, even if you design your course perfectly, um, your students are going to learn less because you're a jerk. And, and, they don't, and they're going to pick up on that. So um, I often say that exactly, you know, you don't have to be funny. Students do like you to be funny. It's true. Funny is good. Humor is good. But if you're not you know, Jay Leno, don't try. Don't, don't, you know, be authentic. What students really want to know is that you're a human being and that you're authentic. And that, that compensates for not being funny. 
um, because you're a person. And as a person, if you can connect with me, I can learn more. One of the chapters you really emphasize being transparent too, which I haven't dissected both of those words, but to me, I can be authentic without being transparent. But when I do both together, just being transparent about that, I care about you. I might think that I care. I might actually really care, but it, but actually vocalizing those words I have found makes such a difference. This might be hard. This this is a challenging part of the class. A lot of times people really have a tough time with whatever it is. I am here to support you. I really care about you. You know, just just to be more articulating my thoughts about care and concern really has helped me in my teaching and I just appreciate your guidance and Eddie's guidance on that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right that 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 the the more transparent you can be, the better. Uh, it also helps if that's if it's personal. You know, I had trouble with this. Mm-hmm. I struggle with this. This didn't make any sense to me when it was at first explained to me. You know, I only came to realize this was. I didn't think this was useful. Whatever. You know, those the personal stories, especially about your own failure, because students look at you and think, well, you must have always gotten an A. You were always sitting in the front row. You were the teacher's pet, right? Uh, that may be true in some cases, but mm-hmm. right? but most of us had a little bit of failure. So, you know, and if you don't make it up, you're going to, you know, you know, admit to some self-doubt when you were their age, because that humanizes you. And it also makes them realize, oh, really? You mean I could become a professor? Because they're thinking, I, I'm not as smart as you because I, you know, I got an A minus and I, I'm a disaster and you must have never gotten an A minus. And so when you say, you know, I got a C on my first test in chemistry and I didn't understand it all and I, and I didn't, it wasn't whatever. All of those stories do matter. It also turns out to be the case that the perception that you care is more important than actual caring. Again, that's just that's just experimental findings. But it also is true that people think that high standards alone make a difference, and they don't. In the same way that just being nurturing alone doesn't make a difference, that you have to be both. You need to you need to articulate this is going to be challenging. And I know you can do it. Mm. If you say this is easy, you know, and if you say, I'm just going to cut you a lot of, I mean, right. You you actually having high standards is great, but it has to be paired with the, I'm going to help you when you fall down piece. And if it's only, I'm going to help you with you, this class is going to be easy. Then students don't do their best work. Students do their best work when they know you expect more of them. When they, when they know this thing is going to be hard. And they know that you're also going to be kind and forgiving if, in fact, the disaster happens and they take a risk, right? So it's a balance of those things. You, you, but but, but in, again, teaching is often about managing the balance between those two things, between about you know, getting students to take risk, getting them to, that you, you will help them, but also saying, this is hard. And also, when you succeed when something is hard, you have a much greater sense of accomplishment. If I say, this is going to be easy, it's okay, and you, then you get it right, you, know, you don't care that much. So... So managing those two things is, is exactly, those are exactly related to the idea that you need to be transparent and authentic and, uh, and, and human to your students. This is the point in the show where we each get to give some recommendations. And I'm going to recommend a series of videos that was put out by the New York Times fairly recently. And they are all around implicit bias or different different types of bias. The specific video I'm going to link to in the show notes is earlier in the series. It's called Peanut Butter, Jelly, and Racism. 
<laughs> these are conversations I don't think we can be having enough with each other, with our students, with members of our community. And these are each just about two to three minute videos that are, explain concepts around bias. And they do it in real creative ways. And I would say, I'm trying to think of the right way of articulating it. They do it with, I guess, a, a regard for anyone who is watching who may have biases, which would be all of us. <laughs> so they do it in a, actually, exactly what you were just saying, Jose, they do it in a caring way that since we all are going to carry around these biases with us, then that's the frame with which they're communicating the videos. It's not a in your face, let me, you know, crush you to the ground <laughs> and, and shame you into having these conversations. It's a much more inclusive way, I think. And I think they would make for great conversations with faculty if you wanted to just play one of the videos and then have planned some questions in advance to discuss. And it also would be great with students who are learning more about bias. Jose, what do you have to recommend today? So I don't have a set of videos or a great new book, but there certainly has been a lot has been written about um, America post-election and how divided we are. And uh, so on the, on the topic of, of, of bias and difficult discussions, uh, my, my recommendation is for more empathy. Uh, and I, I think that many of us are already pretty sensitized in the classroom to things that could go wrong and could say the wrong thing. And so I think you know, that we've added you know, politics to that um, recently. And I think it's not going to stop for a while. So um, I think we need to be honest and transparent with our students that we're going to have difficult conversations and that um, we are going to try to learn to respect and have dialogue, et cetera. But I think the first step is simply empathy. I think the first step is when you listen to somebody else to listen. And, you know, as, as, as faculty, you know, we're, we're called professors. We're good at talking. We're paid to talk in a way. Uh, and so the question is, can we do more listening and, and just listen without judgment? Because what I'd like to do is to get to more understanding. I don't, that doesn't mean agreement. Uh, but I, I do think that the, the first step is to learn how to, if we really want to be inclusive, is to be inclusive, even if those who would exclude. And so that's what empathy means. It, it doesn't mean I agree with you. It just means I, I hear you. I understand. And so I think that's going to be a big challenge. Uh, and so that's certainly what I'm working on uh, personally and on my campus. And uh, it's my recommendation for the, for the beginning of 2017. Jose, it's been wonderful having you back on the show. I'm going to be linking to the first episode that you did back in 2015, as it is still incredibly relevant today. It hasn't gotten dated at all. And look forward to having an upcoming conversation with Eddie as well. Thanks. I think you'll enjoy that. I would love to be in here today. Thanks so much, Bonnie. Thanks once again to Jose for being back on the show. And of course, we both recommend that you pick up his Former book, if you haven't already, Teaching Naked, and then this new one, which has just been released, Teaching Naked Techniques, which has not just Jose's experience and Eddie's experience, but so many more who have been able to contribute to the book. So it's just a very collaborative effort and highly suggest that you pick up a copy. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. And thanks so much for listening. As always, there have been a number of you who have written reviews for the show on iTunes and other services that you use to listen to the show. And it's just so fun to get that 
experience of just being able to grow the community a little bit more. So thanks to those of you who have done it. And if you haven't done it yet, it's really an easy thing to do. You just go in there, you can give it a series of stars, or you can write some couple of sentences, or even just a sentence about what it's like to listen to the show to get people to experience it. I do also recommend that people subscribe to the weekly email. It's just going to come into your inbox a single time each week, and it will have the show notes with the links to everything that we talked about as the second article in the email. The first article is a article that I write about teaching or productivity that'll help you do that. So again, write a review for the show, subscribe to the weekly email. And if you'd like, join us on the Slack channel. That's just a smaller community that's a little bit more private than out there on some of the broader social media tools. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash Slack. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you all soon. Next week, we will have Eddie on the show as a follow-up to talk more about teaching naked techniques. 